Hi, I'm talking to Christine Smallwood, author of The Life of the Mind. Her fiction has appeared in the Paris Review, N Plus One, and Vice. Her reviews, essays, and cultural reporting have been published in many magazines, including The New Yorker, Book Forum, and The New York Times Magazine, where she is a contributing writer. She has also written the new books column for Harper's Magazine, where she is a contributing editor and has been an editor at The Nation. She has a PhD in English from Columbia University, is a founding faculty member of the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, and is a fellow at the New York Institute for the Humanities. The Life of the Mind is her debut novel. It tells the story of an adjunct professor of English in New York City with no hope of finding a permanent position. No one but her boyfriend knows that she's just had a miscarriage, not even her therapist, of which Dorothy has two. Nor can she bring herself to tell the other women in her life, her friends, her doctor, her mentor, her mother. The Life of the Mind is a novel about endings, of youth, of professional aspiration, of possibility, of the illusion that our minds can never free us from the tyranny of our bodies. Hi, Christine. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you so much for having me. So um, I want to start off by asking how long you've been working on this book and the writing process, how much time you spent working on it, writing it, um, and how long it's been basically now that it's out. So I, so, okay. So I guess I should say that I wrote this short story that was published in N Plus One, and I wrote that short story in 2015. And then that story came out and it, and I sort of thought I was done with the story, um, but then decided to go back to it and try to expand it to see if I could turn it into a novel. I was at that time trying to write more short stories and they weren't really going that great. And so I was like, well, you know, that story I published in Plus One, I felt like there was a lot there. Maybe I'll, I'll just go back and kind of see what else I can find there. And then after I decided to go back to it, it was about a year and a half of writing it, and then I sold the book, and then I continued to work pretty extensively on it um, for the next year, year and a half or so. Um, but, you know, it's like I also feel like I kind of started writing the book when I started grad school, um, which was in 2008. Um, so, you know, not consciously, you know, I wasn't consciously working on the book, but I was kind of like collecting all of those experiences. We were talking about that, how the, yeah. the living and the experiencing is is part of the work. It's yeah. interesting, though. Um, did you, like, abandon the short story genre, like, personally or just for this story? Why, why the switch to novel? Um, that's a good question. I think that – I don't really know. It's, I don't think I abandoned the short story in general. I can imagine going back now and writing another short story. But I think that once I decided I was going to – kind of like throw all my chips in with seeing if I could make this novel work. I stopped working on a lot of other, um, a lot of other things in general. And I got kind of interested in like building up this narrative world. That expanded beyond a short story. Yeah. This book has a lot of guts, almost literally. You really carve out moments in the text to live with the female body and all its nooks and crannies. The novel is filled with these moments where Dorothy, um, your protagonist, uh, having recently suffered a miscarriage, finds herself periodically checking on the status of her vaginal uterine bleeding, the quality, the texture, the color of it, even tasting it at one point. And I don't want to say this repulsed me, but if anything, I don't. But at, at the same time, because I have the biology, I have those parts. Um, there was a, a discomfort. And I think also the, the twist of that is that I had an appetite for the repulsion, for the discomfort. Um, and I guess in reading this, 
it occurred to me that like horror functions the same way, right? Like gore, we are drawn to interact with that, which we find incomprehensible, like our guts. Could you talk to me about horror and feminism and how and if you were thinking about these things when writing this novel? Um, That's a really good question. I like thinking of it through that frame. Um, I don't know that I was trying to be horrifying or or repulsive. Um, I think that I was trying to be like real. I think like real was the word that I was thinking of when I was writing. And then it turned out to be something that I think does give a lot of discomfort because it's just kind of Dorothy's really like dwelling in this very like visceral experience she's having, like literally like trying to like pull it apart with her hands. And, but I didn't, I didn't come at it like trying to shock or trying to disgust. It was more just like trying to like, what is the exact color of that product? Like, what is the exact texture of that product? Like trying to like actually just like describe it really fully, which I think winds up having a kind of overwhelming or, or gross effect. Does that make sense? It does. But I still want to know why that was important to you. Why? Because there are a lot of things that you obviously try to portray as realistically as possible. Yeah. But this particular thing, I feel like it's almost like, why was it important that the blood was real beyond like one sentence about there being blood? And and it goes on even beyond the blood, right? You have her like pick her nose at some point, like pretty detailed. Yeah. yeah. Again, very real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I. I guess I just don't, I mean, I hope I don't sound unprepared. I don't really know that I have a good answer for it, except that it felt like it was somehow like important to get at those experiences and to get them to evoke them or to like make them real or present or kind of like in the like nitty gritty of them in some way. And that it did feel to me like there was some project I had of bringing this stuff that is not usually seen or like put under the microscope and putting it under the microscope. Do you know what I mean? Or like putting it out there or like asking people to read it or like bringing it out of like the private world into the public world. I I often ask um, novelists what they're trying to do, (laughs) but mostly I think you're also a reader, right? You're a critic. So I, you, you know, you're a writer and a reader. Um, in taking the time to make space to create a story of your own, is a lot of it a response to a lack from what you're reading? Like, I don't see this, so now I'm going to make it? I think that that wasn't the original impulse, but it kept me going. Do you know what I mean? So like it wasn't where the story came from or where my interest in it came from. But when I would sort of lose faith in it or get frustrated or feel like I should give up, I would say like, no, I think that this is something that like doesn't exist. And like, I don't know why I have to be the person to do it, but I, I have decided that. But that wasn't part of why I sat down to do it in the first place. The novel was also hilarious. So dry, so funny. On page 39, before her best friend, had a baby, Dorothy had not known that babies were flirts. And though you placed Dorothy as an academic, intentionally or not, you also made her a critic. 
On page 10, still more and more, it worried Dorothy to have entrusted her mental health to one who made such little effort against the tide of cliche. Here, Dorothy is criticizing her therapist for not seeming sincere and instead coming across as basically cheesy. This won't do. She's deciding a good therapist should be above a cliche, possibly the most relatable part of the book. Uh, in my opinion. My question to you then is, does part of what makes a good critic involve having a great sense of humor? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, I think there can be great critics who don't have a good sense of humor, but I wouldn't necessarily... Be friends with them. No. <laughs> yeah, be friends with them. Actually, that was what I was thinking. <laughs> or I um, I definitely am biased towards people who have a sense of the comic in life. Like, that's really important to me. And, and I think that, like, you know, you would, you would miss a lot if you didn't have a sense of humor as a critic. But I wouldn't want to say that, no, you... Because, I mean, there's humorless art out there. And I suppose that humorless critics are the best people to write about that humorless but art. But, like, you know, and forgive me for the, like, cliche, but if art is supposed to be truth, which personally I think is a value of mine, I think maybe you share in that sentiment in some ways at least. Um, the truth is also hilarious. Like, the reason something's yeah. funny is because it's true. And so... Yeah. I don't know if I agree with that. I think, but I'm not like the well-established <laughs> critic. But I think maybe um, you need to have some sort of sense if you're going to be investigating how truth is explored. Then you have to be like know how a joke lands. But you've mm-hmm. read, you know, again extensively, and you've reviewed. Like, have you come across? And you don't have to name titles or anything. But have you come across a humorless text that um, isn't, you know? a devastating, like, gripping read. That's its own kind of category of things. But in contemporary literature, doesn't that seem like something that's important to you? It doesn't have to be, but doesn't it? (laughs) It's such a good question. I mean, I just feel like I've certainly read books that were humorless, that were important books to me or or helped me think about things in a different way. But, yeah, I mean, I... I want to agree with you. Like I, I I'm really okay I think with that, you not, but it, this is good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I definitely like having a sense of humor is so important, and I do think if you don't have one, like you won't understand so much, so much about life. But I don't think like even funny people aren't funny all the time, right? Were you detached writing such a detached woman? I feel like yes. But also the sheer focus of your book specificity to me, the way it just hits this intended mood, which is, I think, telling of its success as a novel, it seems like a writing process that would actually require so much attention. It seems like it would require so much attention to write a detached or seemingly disaffected character. Yeah, I definitely didn't feel like I was detached while I was working on it. No, I felt like I was like right, right there in it. But would you agree that Dorothy is detached? Um, that's not a word that I've ever used when I think about her. Um, I think that she is depressed. Um, and I think that she, a word that I have started to use is that she's a little bit untethered. Um, like, and I think that she's hiding. So I I see her as being like less detached and more as like hiding from some of her existing attachments, if that makes sense. Like, I see her as someone who actually, like, is really close friends with Gabby, but is having a hard time connecting to her right now. Mm -hmm. 
for example? I guess when I said that, and again, whether intentionally or not, it feels to me that you, again, made her an academic, but also made her a critic is because her lens throughout the novel, and I mean, this is true of, you know, most novels, but she's like suspect of everyone around her almost to a certain extent. And and that's critical. Like, what are you really doing? What are your motivations? And what are you saying? And wait, how am I supposed to respond now that you've said that? That seems to be like the kind of reflection of language that she's using. And so there's a certain detachment in that because in living life, we are responsive. We are um, reactive. Um, and this is again, like the power of a novelist, you can kind of take a step back uh, away from that impulsiveness. So I think that's what I meant by detached. Yeah. Like hyper analytical. Yeah. 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 Um, Almost to the point where it's like, are you in your body? And I mean, especially in this book where there's so much about, um, the mind and the body and, and the polarity between the two, she's often felt like outside of her body. Yeah, or she's like so fascinated by it that it seems like it's something that's happening to her. Yeah. 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 No, I do think that she is in that way, like uh, observing everything and kind of processing it more than just sort of spontaneously jumping into situations. And that's where you, as the novelist, that's where the attention to detail comes in, right? That's where you are in her experience in a way that you can see it from the outside. Yeah, I think that's right. But it was like when I was when I was writing it, it was more just like I kind of like got into this head and then just wrote it. It wasn't like I was I was never sitting down being like, oh, what are Dorothy's qualities? Like I wasn't actually that systematic about it. It was just like this seems like how she's looking at everything or how she's operating. More and more this is what I'm I'm finding. I also like you know, nerd alert, I just left um a Zoom book launch, a conversation between Lauren Euler and Patricia Lockwood. Oh, how was that? So good. Um, I had Lauren on the pod too. Great. Um, But something that they both kind of said, and again, I I hear this a lot, especially when it comes to like contemporary writers, is that it's almost like you blank out, like the pages come out and then you're there and you're, you're sort of like, how did that happen? But I feel like, and again, in academia, like what they teach you about writing is in no way that experience at all. You're supposed to write out your characters and create background stories for them and this and that. Did did any of those resources from, you know, academic teachings like actually come into play in writing the process? Or is it this experience where you just kind of like blank out and then ta-da, there's a page? No, I mean, I definitely wouldn't describe it as blanking out. I I would describe it um, because I'm a rewriter. So like Mm. I wrote I write a lot and then throw away a lot. Like that's just how I always am about all writing. There's a lot of, of waste. And I think that that is also something that the book is kind of interested in, in like, you know, thematizing or, or talking about. It's just like, what does it mean to produce waste? But um, I, yeah. So like in terms of like character sketches or you're kind of describing like what happens in a fiction workshop, right? I guess, yeah. I've actually never really taken a fiction workshop, but um but I know, I don't think I approached things that systematically, but I did. That's not really true. I don't know how to answer this question. Sometimes I would sit down and like come up with, like I had a whole idea about who's Gabby's, who Gabby's parents were, for example. Right. Because in one version, I actually like had stuff about that. And then I wound up just cutting it. Um, but I kind of, I didn't like, I kind of like created it while I was writing it, this is a terrible answer. You should come. No, no, I think, 
<laughs> I think this is a re- well. I mean, if your mission is realism, which I'll get to later, like this is a real answer. I think this is like a misguided because I'm not a published novelist. I'm barely a published writer, and I feel like there's this narrative weird word to use in this context about what a writer is supposed to do and how that is supposed to look like and how that it finishes. And it's just not really my experience, but I didn't do like an English degree or anything like that. So, and and then again, I didn't write a novel. So like, maybe it should be the experience or maybe it's what's required to write a novel. I think that's why I'm asking. Yeah. I mean, I think that like, just in general, it's really important to be able to throw away stuff you do, you know, like I think like that and, but I've, I'm like that about all writing and all genres like you have to be able to come back to it and look at it and just like toss it and just like save like the one part of it that maybe you can rework into making into something else so going back to sort of the way you connected to the book do you see value in waste yeah I mean I think that's one of the questions of the book right it's like I mean I always I thought of the um it's like, what's a draft, right? Like a draft is often like a piece of waste, that, but you have to write through it to get to the next thing that you're going to write. And so I, I do see value in that and like kind of producing something that then gets discarded so that you can then produce something else. I mean, and this is what happens to Dorothy, right? In the book, she, it seems diminutive to say that she goes through a series of wastes, but things don't really work out for her. And there, there are things that, she hopes we'll have this like happy finish line. And then if anything, have this kind of inconclusive finish line. Um, So her pregnancy, the miscarriage, her career um, hasn't exactly gone the way that she wants. This is the question of the novel, but I guess I'm asking you to, this is, this is unfair, but I do this all the time. Because if you wanted to, you said what you wanted to say in the novel by writing a novel. So why should you answer me in like a sentence or two? That's not the point. But yet, I would like you to answer me in not a sentence or two. Um, if, if you love waste, if you love waste, if, 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 if things that don't come to fruition, if the process is enough. Hmm. I think it, it's such a hard question. I mean, there are certain kinds of waste I don't love. Like I don't love landfill waste, <laughs> right? right? But um, I also don't have an easy solution to it, right? right. Like, I, don't, I don't know like what you do with billions of people who all need to like have umbrellas, for example. Like, like I don't know what, what, is the, what is the solution to that waste. Like I really, I really don't know. Um, but in terms of just like the waste of producing writing, if that's what we're talking about. And living though, because Dorothy's life is, is lived here and I, and it feels like it, it seems like she feels like her life is a waste or again, not in so many dramatic terms, but oh, what was that then if it didn't result in this? It seems to be your question. I'll tell you, I'll answer your question like sort of sideways, which is that my favorite favorite moment in Proust is when the narrator um, is going to talk to this painter and um, the painter is basically like giving him this speech about how, I'm going to get it a little bit wrong, but it's basically how like wisdom is just like all of the mistakes that bring you to your point of view. Right. And so he's talking about, I think, all the time that he wasted as a young man doing this or that or the other thing. But like, this is who he is. Right. And like, now he's arrived at this place. And like, I think that is the truest thing. 
So, you know, like I think a lot about like my decision to go to graduate school, you know, and to get a PhD and like, was that a quote like waste because I didn't decide to then become a tenure track academic? And it's like, no, you know, because I would be like a totally different person. I mean, maybe that's just like a really obvious, even like stoner thing to say, but it's just like all of our decisions lead us to these places. I, I mean, I think it's seen that way, but I also think people act like it's like a really obvious thing to say, and then no one actually accepts it internally. It's like, we're all in therapy to answer the same question that we all secretly have the answer to, but we're like, we resist it. Like, it's not a satisfying answer for whatever reason, but that doesn't mean it's not true. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a slippery slope or whatever, because you don't want to get into a place where then you're like, there isn't always a lesson in every bad experience, right? And so, like, so something like a miscarriage, like, there might not be a lesson in that, or, you know, there might not be, you don't want to fall into the trap of thinking that, like, pain always has a function or a reason or something like that. Like, sometimes there is just bad stuff that happens, and you just kind of, like, go through it and go on to the next thing. But I think if you really believe that, wisdom is nothing but the series of mistakes that you've made, then you kind of have to love those mistakes to a certain extent. It's also interesting because um, even though, you know, you moved from a short story form to a novel form for, for this, you place a little, like, kind of one of my favorite short stories ever at some point in the book. And it's when uh, Dorothy runs into like an old friend um, and basically like just divulges. I don't want to get into too much because I don't want to spoil it. And it really is just worth like reading. It's not that long. That's a thing. But you you really transform uh, the reader into this whole other world. And we're so consistently with Dorothy through the novel. And then at point in this novel, we're just not. We're with this new character and their friend and the kind of crazy short story that they're involved in that involves twins um, and, a, and a love affair. Can you talk to me a bit more about your choices in putting that story where you put it and the story itself that differs so much from the rest of the book? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and I think that the truth is that like, I don't, I, like I felt very strongly that I needed to have that this scene in the book, but I don't know that I have ever been able to justify it intellectually. I mean, I think the book is very interested in doubles. And so there's like a sense in the book of there being kind of like too many of certain kinds of people. Like there's two therapists, there's um, Dorothy's mother has a sort of surrogate daughter. So there's kind of like too many daughters. There's too many therapists. There's in this one story, like, there's these twins, you know, like, why are, why are, there's just like a kind of like, like superfluity in a way. And, um, and Dorothy at different times is thinking about the problem of contingency and like, basically like, could I have been somebody else? Like, you know, as an adjunct laborer, she's a quote contingent member of the faculty. Like she could just as easily not be there as be there. Somebody could be in her place. And so there was just this kind of like, there's just kind of like ambient doubleness in the book. And so that's kind of to myself how I like justified wanting this story here. Um, although it does kind of like, you're right, like stick out from the narrative. And it is, there's probably like five or six pages where all of a sudden there's a different person who's really talking to you. It felt like fitting a short story into a novel though, which mm -hmm. to me, I like I applaud that. 
Yeah. And I also like, I liked it also just, or I sort of justified to myself because I was like, this is just the kind of weird conversation you get into at a conference. Like they're at, they're at this casino. Conferences are so weird. Conferences are weird. They're at this restaurant. There's weird restaurant in the casino. They have a weird relationship to each other. You know, like Dorothy has all these feelings about the woman who's telling the story based on their different statuses. And so I just kind of felt like it seemed like the kind of thing that would happen to her on this trip that she was on. In a recent review of the novel, writer Gia Tolentino says, like many of the people who will love this novel, Dorothy is either tremendously depressed and dysfunctional or completely ordinary and doing pretty well. For me, what was hard to bear in the novel is that if pain is mundane, then even the mundane is pain. This is a hard message to hear. Do you think that this book requires that its readers share a specific appetite? Yeah, I mean, I think this book is not for everyone. Um, But I think most things that are good are not for everyone. You know, I think that like most books are not, do not have like wide universal appeal. I always kind of had the sense that like there would be people who really liked my book and then there would be a lot of people who were not interested and that that was totally fine. (laughs) You know, like I wasn't... You know, you can't, you can't worry about that. Is this again, like, Christine the Critic? Is that like, is that a perspective from Christine the Critic or Christine the Novelist? I asked Lauren the same question, so I've annoyed you both. Um, I think it's like, I, I don't know what it is. I think it's just like, you know, I think you write, or like, I felt like this was a book I really had to write, I really wanted to write. And then I knew that some people would be, not like not like it but I think that that's it's like not everybody has to like me not everybody has to like my book you know I don't certainly like everybody I don't like all books and so I think that I also think like when you have read a lot you know that sometimes you just don't like a book it's not for you right or like you don't you don't want it to be for you you don't want to like give yourself to it for whatever reason does that make sense maybe I'm not really answering your question no no it does but it's still, I'm asking, and again, this is like the question you're not supposed to ask, but I feel like it's unavoidable. Like, are you, were you thinking of the reader of this novel? Are you, is there still an ideal reader for you now that this novel is out there? No, in fact, I never really thought about who, who would read it while I was writing it. And still to this day, now that it's out there in the world. Well, I almost feel like that's not really, it's not really my business to, to worry about that. Like now that it's out there, it's for other people to talk about. It's for other people to write about if they choose to. It's for other people to have experiences of or not. Like I kind of can't like control it. It's sort of like, I mean, in a way it's like a child, like you, you, you have your child and you do your best and then they go out into the world and they're going to be their own person out there. I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm rooting for the book, right? I'm definitely like rooting for the book. I want it to find its people, but I, I'm aware that, you know, not all people will be its people. I I would say it's kind of like having a child, but unlike a child, you you don't like get paid to to criticize other children. (laughs) Um, And and there's that same kind of thing, right? Of like an author's releasing their baby out into the world, but you, I think, have um, a talent for discernment, or I think as a critic would have that as a skill, if talent isn't the right word. Um, And so I think there's a way to discern 
how good this book is and how smart it requires its reader to be. There, I've lost my bias. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I definitely um, understood that, like, if you didn't, that there would, that, like, somebody who loved to read would be more likely to like my book. Like, my book works best if you also want to think about that Kafka story that's in it or, right. you know, Thomas Mann, or if you know that Sylvan Tompkins is a real theorist that Dorothy is teaching. Like, if, like, the book will work better for you if you know those things. I think that it can work for you if you don't know those things. Um, but I, yeah, I always, I always kind of had the sense of that. But I, I wasn't going to not include those things. Those are the things I wanted to write about. I took it quite personally when one of Dorothy's therapists shares that her session will soon become a podcast. She has decided to launch. Dorothy is skeptical of this unveiling of intimacy in such a public forum. Welcome to Weird Error, Christine. <laughs> Dorothy makes a joke about what the podcast should be called. Cap, you know, what does it say about you that you have agreed to this recording is what she suggests for a podcast name. But if we're criticizing this unveiling of intimacy, could this book also be called What Does It Say About You That You Have Agreed to This Novel? Yes, I'm so glad that you got that. Yeah, absolutely. So that was like a, that was a self-deprecating joke. Like if you I were stand-up, so. that was the moment where you were taking a self-deprecating I think so. Joke. I mean, I think it's like a little bit winky. I mean, of course, the difference is that in the world of the book, the therapist's podcast is literally just recordings of her sessions. Um, whereas, you know, the novel is like takes experience or ideas and hopefully transforms them. So it's not exactly the same, but I think that like the book at several points kind of like nut asks, like, what does it mean to put um, something so personal into, into public view? You know, like at one point Dorothy says to her students, I think like, what's the difference between shameless. It's my next question. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you the question that Dorothy poses her students. Is shameless the opposite of shameful? I mean, they're certainly in, a, in an interesting relationship to each other. Um, I don't know if they're opposites. <laughs> okay. I don't think the book is shameless, but I do think it's about, I mean, it's about shame. Like shame is one of the things that I'm just most interested in. And asking the question, is shameless the opposite of shameful? You don't think it's the opposite? No, are they the same thing though? I think that we often treat them like they're the same thing. If we say that something is really shameless, what we really mean is that that person should be ashamed of what they're doing. That, that, you know, like that person is without shame and they should have some shame. They should not be showing us whatever they're showing us. I do think that that's what we say, but in terms of what we live and are, I think we enjoy shame a little bit. Oh, for sure. And we don't talk about it because we understand it in these polarized ways, in this good or bad way. But there's actually a, a way that shame, being shameless isn't shameful because it's pleasuring. Uh-huh. Yeah. To who? To the viewer or to the person who's the exhibitionist? To all of us, right? Yeah. And, and you don't, I don't think you have to be an exhibitionist necessarily. I, I certainly think it's true of Dorothy, no, I mean, I think that, I mean, it's a really complicated, hard question to ask, like, what, where is the pleasure in our shame? Like, what do we take pleasure in other people's shame? Yeah, I mean, what could be, what could be more interesting than that question? It is a really hard question to ask. And you have Dorothy, like, ask, like, shouting it out to their students as they're, like, packing their books and, like, yeah. leaving the class. Yeah. Which I loved. Um, on page 24, Dorothy remarks how she was regularly assaulted to the point of porousness by digital media, which was mm. such a good sentence. 
Do you hate digital media? Okay. So when we say digital media, what do we mean? Twitter. (laughs) Twitter. I have a complicated relationship with Twitter. So I was on Twitter originally um, like eight years ago. And I just loved it too much. I just, I just loved it. And, you know, at that point, Twitter was like a little weirder. It was less professional. It was somewhat newer. And I just like, I just loved it. And I started, you know, I was tweeting all the time and I was like thinking in tweets and I had to quit. And I got kind of uncomfortable about two things. One was that I was starting to like think tweet jokes and tweet them instead of sharing them with my partner you know, and like that didn't feel good. And then the other thing was that I started to notice my own tendency to kind of perform a sort of incompetence um, that I felt was really actually like quite unfeminist, you know, and I, I was like, I'm a smart person. Why am I like making jokes about, I don't, I don't know, just like my con, like not taking my contacts out before falling asleep or whatever. I was like, what is this thing that women do where we have to kind of like act like were sort of hapless in public, mm-hmm. but, but that was totally my go-to, a kind of like, you know, sort of reveling in one's own dysfunction kind of thing. And I just didn't feel comfortable with it anymore. Plus it was taking up too much time. So I, I quit. Um, and then I, of course, like continue to like lurk and look at it and so forth. And now I have a, a Twitter account again um, to promote the book, which is, I have a lot of ambivalence about it. I, I do something I really like about Twitter now that I didn't like before is how many great book recommendations I'm getting on Twitter. Like so many smart people who love books are on there chatting all day and you can learn a ton from them. So that's cool. It's really interesting to hear that um, because I think most people say that they hate Twitter now. So, and I understand why all of the things of, I totally, if anything, relate why you need to step away, why you did step away. But your immediate answer was that you loved it so much. Why did you love it so much? Oh, I just thought it was fun. You know, I think anybody who loves being quippy or likes to try to be witty or funny will like Twitter. You know, I I don't like revel in internet language, but I can understand why people do and like what the, the pleasure around that and, and the interest around that. But yeah, for me, it was just like jokes. I just like loved making jokes. And then of course you get totally addicted to likes and, and so forth and people talking with you and all of the, all of that obvious stuff. Um, so I've been working in publishing for a couple of years. It's just my latest project, but I, I would, you know, I've been working in the field for some time. I think you have as well. Do you have thoughts on publishing online? Not like publishing a piece online, like the way that the 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 culture and the community of publishing that used to be this thing. And when I say used to, I'm talking, you know, like the romanticized view of like back in the day, of like people in glasses, drinking coffee, reading manuscripts, like it's completely offline. And, and, and now it's very much this thing where, you know, literally publishers are all online, book publicists are all online, people like me are all online, novelists are online, all talking to each other, trying to sell their books, trying to write their books, trying to like, do you feel... What are your thoughts on, on publishing and in, in, uh, online on the internet is what I'm trying to ask. Um, I guess I have two thoughts. One thought is that I think it's unfortunate that writers have to publicize their own work. Um, I think it, you know, it used to be the job of the writer to write the article and then it was in a magazine and you didn't really know 
how it did. You didn't really know how popular it was. Um, and you certainly weren't in charge of getting people to read it, right? You had a different job, which was reporting or, or reading or whatever and, and writing. And I think that it's really unfortunate that writers have to put on this other hat or feel they have to put on this other hat and drive traffic to their pieces. I think it's really unfortunate that writers know how, quote, successful or popular what they write is. I think that's, I don't think that's particularly useful information for the writer. I can understand why it's really useful information for the publication. Um, And then secondarily, I think that if you're a reviewer, I can see how when you're on Twitter and you're just kind of like in an ecosystem with the people that you're writing about, that I don't think that's great for anyone. You know, I I think that you just inevitably are going to wind up being aware that, oh, at some point people are going to, this person is going to see what I did. You're just kind of a little too close to each other, I think. Too aware. Yeah. And I mean, it's like, I think it's kind of, it's an interesting thing. It's like, oh, if you follow each other and then you write about that person, I don't know. There's just like these, like these interesting, like social pressures, I think. I, I, well, speaking of sort of, I just read this Catherine Hahn interview and the writer remarks on the specific kind of female characters Hahn has played uh, late in her career in particular. I don't know how familiar you are, um, but there's a way in which these roles have appealed to an audience of younger women. And Hahn in turn says, young women are interested in looking at older women. They're interested in what that is because it's so mysterious and there used to be such an invisibility shield. Because the book finds Dorothy continuously in conversation with other women, you know, I'll use a word you use in the book on page 105, sororally. I wonder what your thoughts are on this in, A, just being a young woman yourself, but I guess more specifically, again, in media and publishing. Like, what is the relationship between the older woman and the younger woman now and there? Oh, that's a hard question. Um, Well, I'm 40, so I'm sort of in the middle, right? I don't really consider myself a young woman, although it's interesting to be put in the category of the debut novelist, Mm. right? Which I think you're supposed to be like 27 or whatever. (laughs) I keep seeing the word debut near my name, and I'm like, that's weird because I feel like I've been around. But um, yeah, so what is the relationship between the younger woman and the older woman? Like, you mean in terms of mentorship? Yeah, because it's, it's there in the book, right? Like, literally, there's there's an older character that Dorothy refers to as, like, someone she really looked up to. Yeah, her, her advisor. Yeah, and there's a mentorship between her and Gabby, even. that's And they're of equal age, I think, and that's normal, too, because I think in female friendships or even in friendships, you, you look up to each other. But yeah. there's something very feminine... Um, specifically feminine about it in this novel. Yeah, it's interesting. It wasn't actually, again, I didn't like set out to do that. And at a certain point, um, my husband, when he read a draft of it, he was like, there are almost no men in this book. (laughs) And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, it's weird. I didn't notice that. Um, And then sort of thought more about it and, you know, worked worked on it. He thought it was a, a good thing. But it was something that I hadn't actually kind of like wrapped my head around until that point. But, um, you know, I think that Dorothy is surrounded by a lot of different kinds of women, you know, so there's the mother, the therapists, her advisor, her friendships, but like none of them are like quite working for her. 
right? And none of them are really providing her with an idea of like who she could be or who she should be. And so I think there's both a kind of like looking for female mentorship or a feminist connection of some kind and then that kind of failing over and over again you know like she's quite she's quite lonely as a character yeah I mean I think it's like when I think about the relationship between Dorothy and her former advisor you know like the the life that the former advisor whose name is Judith has is just totally unavailable to Dorothy you know like Mm -hmm. Judith just came of age at a different moment and has a kind of job security and power and prestige Dorothy will never have and really no one from her generation will have in the same way like even people of Dorothy's generation who acquire tenure will never have that kind of like untrammeled security you know what I mean and like I think that so there's a kind of an impossibility to identify with Judith because like she really represents a way of life that's just not available which is also part of the fantasy right like like wanting something that is out of reach yeah but I think it's a kind of like that's the that's the cruel optimism right that's like the attachment to a a a life or a fantasy that's just not available and so I mean I think that's also I think a very millennial preoccupation right like we're looking at our parents generation and we're seeing like a certain kind of ability to acquire wealth or to own a home or to have a pension fund right and all of this stuff that's just not on the table for us and these are the things on your mind in writing this novel, I presume. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, Dorothy's, like, quote, precarity was something that I was trying to, like, I think part of her, part of her loneliness and despair is this precarity, right? Like, she really has uh, very few options. Uh, her future is being, like, foreclosed in different ways. The novel is also, well, it's not also, the novel is existential, there's a sort of, um, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it, it didn't even happen vibe, except it's about pregnancy and fetuses. I was pregnant, but then I wasn't. So was I ever, what was that experience? What is it now? I was going to be a mother, but now I'm not. Will I ever, who am I on page 100? If you wanted to fool yourself that something was an ending, you just had to go out and start something that was pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. This feels bleak. Is there a reading of it? That's optimistic. Um, is there a reading of the book? Okay, so I think, I'm going to answer your question kind of sideways, I guess. It's like, I don't think the book is totally bleak in the end. Like, I think that there is a change in Dorothy's character over the course of the book. I think we leave her in a different place than we found her. Um, But the sentence you just read I don't see that as being like bleak or not bleak. It's just like how she's looking at that particular thing. You know, if you didn't want to say something was ending, you just went out and did it again with somebody else. I mean, isn't that what like serial relationships are, you know? Yeah. I don't know if those are the opposite. I think those are bleak. (laughs) I think serial relationships are bleak. I guess it depends how they are when you're in them, you know, like, like what, what is the present moment of them? But yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I don't think that overall, I don't think the book is like unrelenting in its bleakness. No, there, I certainly agree with that. There, there was a lightness at the end of the novel, you know, down to the last few pages. Um, and again, I don't want to spoil it. I, I, yeah, I guess we don't want to spoil the ending, but I, um, 
I think that Dorothy just like shifts. You know, I think she comes to terms with some things. Thank you, Christine. This is great. Okay, thank you. 